Good morning. Come on. Good morning. That's better. It is uh, a joy to be here with you. It's an honor to open God's word together. Uh, before we get started, let me just say publicly what a, uh, a joy it is to know the Wheelers. We love and respect Brad. We love the Wheeler family. Um, and we have a, a deep admiration for this congregation, especially for the decades of faithful gospel ministry in this congregation. So let's uh, begin our time by going to the Lord in prayer one more time and asking him to help us as we look into his word. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we ask you now that you would sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your beautiful word and what we know not, please teach us and what we have not, please give us and what we are not, please make us all for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved son who lives with you and who reigns with you together with the Holy Spirit, one God forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. Amen. Authority gets a really bad rap these days, doesn't it? Authority gets a bad rap these days, but it's, it's easy to understand why. We all know those in positions of authority who have misused their power. I imagine every single one of us in this room have known someone or you've been yourself wronged by someone who use their power or their strength to harm you or to hurt you. The abuse of power really, and at least in one part, explains why so many people these days are suspicious altogether of power. You hear people all the time these days talking about seeing everything through the lens of things called power dynamics. Now, back in 1887, there was a guy named Lord Acton who said something in a letter that I'm sure all of you know, you've heard before. He said one time in a letter in 1887 that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, the full quote is this, quote, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, end quote. Well, this morning I have the joy of drawing your attention in Luke's gospel to someone who is the exception to that rule. I have the joy of drawing your attention to someone who has absolute power, to someone who has all authority in heaven and on earth, who has, according to A.W. Tozer, someone who has an incomprehensible plenitude of power and yet someone who uses his omnipotent power not to harm, but to heal the suffering. Not to ruin, but to rescue the perishing. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. If you're if you're here and you're not used to reading a Bible, you can find this in the Pew Bible 
there on page 863. And you will be far less bored over these next few minutes if you have your Bibles open as I draw your attention to the verses. Those are the sentence numbers, right? And if you're not used to reading a Bible, the the chapter number is the big number. Um, But Luke chapter 7 Beginning in verse 11, let me briefly, since we're jumping into Luke, let me set the context of our passage. All the way through Luke chapter 7, Jesus Christ has been ministering and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and going from village to village, healing and performing signs and wonders in the midst of all of Israel. He's mainly been ministering in the northern part of Israel, up in the Galilee, And so right before we read our passage, Jesus has just performed an amazing healing of a sick, deathly sick servant of a Roman centurion in verses 1 to 10. And that brings us here in verse 11 where we discover the answer to the question of what happens when the Lord over death attends a funeral. This is what Holy Scripture says. Soon afterward, he, that is Jesus, went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town. And behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier and the bearer stood still. He said, to, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother and fear seized them all and they glorified God saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people and this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country my prayer for each one of us this morning is that through this passage we would see our Savior's heart that we would see the glory and grace of the Lord who is even Lord over death. That's my prayer for you and for me. Now, I'm gonna walk through this passage verse by verse and then when we get to the end, I wanna draw some implications for us from this text. But I know that there are some serious note takers among us and I'm I'm gonna give you three points at the end. So everyone just be calm, it's okay. Enjoy the message, and I promise you, you can relax. I'll give you some application points at the end, okay? Now notice in verse 11, Luke begins by setting the scene. Notice what he says. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So Jesus has just healed the servant of the centurion, and he leaves now his home base of ministry in the north in Capernaum, We know that from chapter 7, verse 1. And he travels to this place, this town, this village called Nain. If you look in the back uh, back of your Bibles, you know those, those maps that you never use? You know those maps? If you look at those maps that you never use, you'll notice that Jesus is traveling north of the Sea of Galilee. He's traveling down south, southwest. 
And it's about a distance of 25 miles that Jesus would be traveling by foot to Nain. That's basically an all day trip. So Jesus likely set out, set out early in the morning because it was gonna take him all day to get there. And it's interesting, he doesn't tell anybody, the text doesn't say anything about Jesus announcing where they're going. He just gets up one morning and starts going. His disciples and crowds follow him. Nain was not a destination type city. There's really not a whole lot we know about this Nain. It was kind of an insignificant place. It's in the Jezreel Valley. It was on a hill called Moreh, which on the other side of that hill in the Old Testament, remember the story about the prophet Elisha that the Lord used to raise a young boy from the dead. That happened on the other side of the hill in Shunem, but nothing like that had ever happened in Nain. So Jesus is walking all day long with his disciples. They arrive at Nain and they meet a funeral procession, verse 12. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. So Jesus arrives and there, there's a, a funeral service. There, there's a group of people, mourners, leaving Nain outside the city. According to Old Testament law, you didn't bury someone in the city. You buried them outside the city. And there's this funeral procession. They're taking this this body to the, to the graveyard for a funeral. Given the fact that Jesus probably took all day to get there, it was likely twilight. And you know in the Old, you know in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that, that for someone, especially in Jewish context, and we know from the New Testament especially, that they, you didn't embalm someone. You, you typically had a, a very quick funeral. Uh, you didn't keep a corpse overnight, remember? Lazarus, when he died, he was buried the same day that he died. The Lord Jesus was buried the same day that he died. That was the common practice. So it's likely that this, this young man died that, that very day that Jesus was traveling there. Now, children, they didn't have hearses, as you know, in the first century. And so the way you transported a, a body was you would carry them on something that was almost like an open coffin, uh, something that was just kind of a, a wooden plank. And your, the ESV renders it buyer or beer, and so the, the, the funeral procession, fix this in your mind, it, it likely involved, typically involved family or friends. We're told that the whole town is there following this procession to the grave. We know from other places in the New Testament that sometimes people would hire professional mourners, women who would wail and sing dirges to magnify the mourning that the family was experiencing. We see that in other parts of the Gospels. So this is what Jesus walks upon. But of all the funerals recorded in scripture, brothers and sisters, this is likely the saddest one in the Bible. Look again at verse 12. A man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Just think about that for a minute. This woman is not only grieving the loss of her son, but her only son. And she's not only grieving the loss of her only son, she's a widow. Her husband is dead. She's buried him. 
Perhaps she's made this march to the grave before. But when that happened that time, her son was with her. But she walks, this poor woman walks to the graveyard on this day alone with no son to comfort her. You know from the Old Testament scriptures that widows were the most vulnerable in society. And so the Lord constantly makes provision to care for the widow. This woman has no one left to provide for her, to protect her, to care for her. She's in effect, one commentator calls her, calls her an orphaned parent. And so the family line has died with her son. Her present is in jeopardy. Her future is looking dim. Now she's going to bury her only son, perhaps next to her husband. The reason I highlight this, brothers and sisters, is in the Old Testament scriptures, the death of an only son is described by God in his word to picture the pinnacle of pain and loss. Jeremiah 6, 26 says this, O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. Make a most bitter lamentation. This woman, this poor woman, this poor widow at Nain is enduring a bitter lamentation. The entire town realizes this, so they've all come out to follow her to the funeral. But in many ways, this woman's mourning alone. And it's this precise moment when Luke reveals the purpose of Jesus's all-day trip to Nain. Look at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Luke intends by the repetition of that word. Look at your Bible. Don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. You see that word her? Do you see that? He's emphasizing the word her three times. Look at it again. The Lord saw her. He had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. You see, this entire crowd of mourners are there. But Luke says that the Savior focuses his attention and his compassion on one person in that crowd. Her, this poor widow. Now, can you imagine going up to a widow who's lost her only son and telling her, stop crying? Don't weep? Well, interestingly, notice who Luke tells us is saying this. Look again. What, is, what does Luke call Jesus in verse 13? When the Lord saw her. That's the first time in Luke's gospel where Luke refers to Jesus as the Lord. Up until this point in Luke's gospel, demons have recognized Jesus as the Lord. Angels have declared him to be the Lord. But here Luke tells us it's the Lord, the one who is full of compassion and mercy, is coming up to this woman and saying, don't weep. Because the Lord knows what he's about to do for her. Verse 14 Jesus came up and touched the stretcher 
the open coffin and the bearers stood still. Now picture the scene. This grieving widow's in the front of the funeral. Jesus tells her to stop weeping. He's, he halts the funeral procession. He, he touches where the corpse is. Now this is shocking. In the Old Testament scriptures in Numbers 19, to touch a dead body is to become what? Ceremonially unclean. It's to become defiled. That's why you buried, you buried corpses outside the city so that you wouldn't be around the defiling nature of corpses. To touch the dead made one unclean. But Jesus is not a sinful Israelite, is he? He's the Holy One of Israel. And so he touches and he stops everything. In verse 14, he speaks to the corpse. Jesus said, young man, I say to you, arise. This poor widow doesn't ask Jesus to do anything. There doesn't seem to be any acknowledgement by her of who Jesus is. He simply addresses the corpse of this young man and commands him, young man, I say to you, get up, get up. This is something that you would typically say to like a teenage boy, right? In the morning, you're, he's waking him up, get up. But the mighty words of Christ wake this dead boy from the very clutches of death itself. Verse 15. And the dead man. Notice Dr. Luke doesn't want you confused. The boy wasn't sleeping. He was dead. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Oh, I wish Luke had recorded his words. What, what would he have said? And then my favorite part of the whole passage. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Dr. Luke records that the Lord Jesus gave this man, this young man, back to his mother. The Savior knows more than anything in the world. This poor widow wanted to hold her only son again. And so just like we read, just like the prophet, he brings this young boy back and says, here's your son back, your only son, alive and well. Now just imagine that, re that, that, re that reunion. That's amazing. Tears of mourning replaced by tears of joy. Fire the wailing women. Fire the wailing, we're not having a funeral today. We're having a coming home party. Everybody's invited. It's time to rejoice because this, my son, was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. My brothers and sisters, what, a, what in the world are we supposed to make of all of this? What, what, what are we supposed to draw from this? What implications from this? are we supposed to draw? Well, first I would point out in verses 16 and 17 to let's pay careful and prayerful attention to the response of the people who were there that day when it happened. Notice how they respond and then we can seek to draw some implications for us. Verses 16 and 17. What we find here is that 
What Jesus does in this short space here in Luke 7, it ought to provoke us to worship Christ and to witness of Christ. Where am I getting that? Look at verse 16. The first response from what happened is worship. Worship. Verse 16, fear or dread seized them all and they what? Glorified God. They worshiped God saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. So the first response is one of worship. Notice the second response. It's a, it's a response of witness. Verse 17, and this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding countryside. So brothers and sisters, this is what I'm arguing. I'm arguing that this passage is intended for us to see something of who Jesus is as the Lord over death that ought to inform our worship of him and also our witness of him, okay? And so I wanna draw your attention to just three things from the text that ought to fuel our worship and our witness of the living Christ. And I, I alliterated. So I want you to ponder his purpose, number one, his pity, and his power. I want us to ponder his purpose. I want us to ponder his pity. I want us to ponder his power. And I pray that all of these would fuel us to worship him and to witness of him. First, ponder his purpose. The Lord's sovereign purpose as revealed in this passage ought to fuel your worship and witness of Christ. By raising this boy, this young man in Nain, it reveals the Lord's sovereign purpose over all things. Where am I getting that from the text? Well, first of all, let me just point out, the Son of God knows all things and he is never late. He's never late. Now in Northern Virginia, in the Washington DC area, traffic is a perpetual nightmare. And you plan on going someplace that's supposed to take you 30, maybe 35 minutes, and it ends up taking you an hour and a half because Waze and Google Maps don't know the future. They, they, don't, they don't tell you, hey, there's an accident about to happen on I-95. But brothers and sisters, listen, Jesus is never late. He's never late. Now, why am I getting this? He knows precisely when to leave Capernaum, to travel all day 25 miles to get to the gates of Nain at precisely the right time. He's never late. He travels this whole way knowing his purpose is to comfort, encourage this widow and to raise her son from the dead. Now, brothers and sisters, maybe... Maybe you're here and you're finding it difficult. You're finding it difficult. You're growing tired of waiting for the Lord Jesus to work his good purposes in your life. You're beginning to, to doubt because you're waiting for something good, something good. 
And it doesn't appear like the Lord is going to provide that for you. You're tempted to feel like he's running late. It could be a spouse. It could be a friend. It could be a child. Maybe it's a, a new job. And it just hasn't happened yet. And you're tempted to believe that either Jesus is withholding good from you or maybe he's just running late. Friend, listen to me. Even when Jesus Christ shows up in the middle of a funeral, the Lord is never late. There's another funeral that Jesus attends in the Gospels. Remember when he shows up to Lazarus' funeral? Martha comes out, Lord, if only you had been here. If only if you weren't late, my brother would not have died. And what did Jesus say to Martha? Sorry I was late? No. He looked Martha right in the eyes and said, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And whoever, one who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Jesus is never late. Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to know that you can trust this one. You can trust him. And if you're struggling doubting that he's ordained good for you, you need to remember the Bible teaches that his times are in your, your times are in his hands. You can trust his timing. And so the Bible calls us to wait on the Lord, doesn't it? The fundamental posture of the Christian in this world is the posture of waiting. We're, we're all waiting, aren't we? The Lord himself waits to be gracious to you. And he exalts himself to show mercy to you. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Isaiah 30, 18. Brothers and sisters, I want you to ponder his good and sovereign purpose in your life. Reflect over his good and sovereign purposes that he has worked in your life. And so in the next couple days, when you spend time with family and friends, maybe that don't know Jesus over Thanksgiving, you want to worship the one who provides all good things for you to enjoy. And you want to worship and witness to the one who does all things well and who is never late. Let's pray that for one another. Reminding ourselves that he is the alpha and the omega, that he knows the beginning from the end and that he is working everything together for your good and for his glory. Ponder his purpose this morning. Number two, this text teaches us and calls us to ponder the Lord's pity. The Lord's pity, that is his tender compassion ought to fuel our worship and our witness of Christ. 
Luke 7, if you just zoom out and you haven't read Luke 7, the whole chapter is devoted to show us the incredible saving mercy of God in Christ. The chapter begins with Jesus going and, and healing the sin, the sick servant of the centurion. And then we have this episode with the, the, the widow, a Jewish widow. And then we have a, a sinful woman who is forgiven at the end of the chapter. The whole chapter is intended to show us the mercy, the pity of Christ. I want you to look again at verse 13. So don't look at me, look down. The Lord saw her and had compassion on her. Did you notice he sees her and then he has compassion on her. That's important. It's really easy to avoid seeing people who are hurting. If you're not careful, hurting people can become invisible to you. They were never invisible to the Lord Jesus. He sees her. And he has compassion on her. And perhaps this morning, if anything, we should confess and repent of ways in which we fail to see those around us. In our family, in our church, kids in our schools. We fail to see those who are hurting because we just, maybe we don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. We don't want to make it worse, right? So we just don't say anything or we avoid them. We see them walking and we just kind of cross the street. Perhaps we need to repent of that. Robert Murray McChain was one of my favorite dead pastors. He died when he was 29. He's a Scottish Presbyterian. And he wrote in his journal, the only cure for a cold heart is to look at the heart of Jesus. If your heart is cold towards those who are grieving this morning, what this text is doing is revealing the merciful heart of Christ for sinners. That's why the Gospels were written, so that we could know the heart of the Savior who came into the world to seek and to save the lost. His heart is on display right there in verse 13. He saw her and he had compassion on her. And if you've read Luke's gospel, you should stop and say, wait a second, I've heard that before. That shows up in Luke's gospel. Where have I read that before? You probably know him already. Luke chapter 10, verse 33. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to the place where he was and he saw him and what? Had compassion on the man who was on the side of the road. And then you keep reading in Luke's gospel, you get to chapter 15, the parable, parable of the prodigal son. And what are we told about the father there? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him had compassion on him and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. You see the tender compassion depicted in the parable of the good Samaritan and the parable of the prodigal son is 
in the flesh, incarnate at name. Jesus' heart for sinners who are grieving and who are suffering is revealed right here in this passage. And for those of us this morning who find you're in a season where you're grieving, where you're discouraged, where you're mourning, this is a wonderful news that he's not distant from you. Behold the heart of Christ. There's no mercy so great in all the world that's found in Jesus Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christian, the same Savior who showed pity to this poor widow in Nain still lives. He lives to intercede and to show compassion to you in your grief. The one who made the widow's heart sing for joy at the gates of Nain lives today. He lives and he can put a new song in your mouth. You can bring your sorrows as we sang earlier and lay them at the pierced feet of the Savior because he lives and he delights to show you mercy. So Christian, if you're hurting, you need to know he's not distant, he's not late. Not a tear nor a sigh or a prayer ever escapes his notice. He is nearer to you, friend, than the light by which you see and the air by which you breathe. He's nearer to you this morning than you are to yourself. And you can trust him. I want you to ponder his pity. We should be eternally grateful, each one of us who knows Christ, that he saw us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And by his mercy made us alive together with him. Ponder his pity. But thirdly and finally, I want to just ponder his purpose and his pity. I want you to ponder his power. If there's anything in this text that we should draw an implication about is the incredible omnipotent power of Christ. The Lord's almighty power ought to fuel our worship and witness of him. And he demonstrates his almighty power over our greatest enemy, death itself. The very enemy that every one of us is powerless to stop. Jesus in this passage, literally, I love it. He stops death in its tracks. Isn't that wonderful? You can say amen in this church, I think, right? I mean, isn't it great? Every time Jesus shows up at a funeral in the scriptures, something amazing happens, right? Usually there's a party afterwards. And that's what happens here. By his power, he reveals that he is the Lord God of Israel. That Psalm 68 says is the defender and the protector of widows. He traveled 25 miles to care for a widow. By his power, Jesus in this passage, I love this, reveals that he is able to do what the law of God is powerless to do. 
The law of God can only pronounce that you're unclean. It can only pronounce that you're guilty. But Jesus Christ is able to do what the law can't do. He can not only cleanse unclean sinners, he can raise them from the dead. Listen, I don't know what you're going through this morning. There is nothing that a good resurrection won't fix. Jesus touches and gives life and restores and heals and he can do abundantly beyond what the law can do. He touches death and he gives life. But Luke's gonna tell us if we keep reading in his gospel that there's gonna be a day coming at the end of Luke's gospel where Jesus is touched himself by death. A day when Jesus himself becomes an outcast when he goes outside the gate to suffer and he suffers alone. He was deemed unclean on that day. He was deemed as others saw him as defiled, as someone who was cursed of God and afflicted. And Jesus on the cross he bore the curse of the sins of his people. On that day, Jesus Christ hung in our place for our sins to pay the penalty that we deserved. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore the judgment of God in place of sinners like you and like me. We've all We've all done whatever we wanted to do instead of what our maker has called and commanded us to do. There isn't a single person in this room who's loved the Lord our God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And none of us have loved our neighbor as ourselves. But the creator God who made all things, including you, because of his abounding mercy, sent his eternal son, his only son, into the world, who took on flesh and who dwelt among us. And Jesus Christ went to the cross, died in our place, rose again on the third day, never to die again. And he is exalted in heaven and he extends pardon and righteousness and forgiveness of sins to anyone who would turn from their sins and trust in him to receive the Savior in the empty hands of faith. That's the, that's the good news. That's the good news that this church believes. That's the good news that Christians have believed for centuries. This is the good news of the gospel. He offers you forgiveness because he offers you himself this morning. If you don't know the Lord, that's what this passage is calling you to. Not to a set of rules, not to do things. It's inviting you to have Christ, the one who lived, died, and rose again. Death touched Jesus, but death could not hold him. And friend, the one who gave life at Nain 2,000 years ago is able to give life again this morning. Brothers and sisters, I find this an incredibly 
helpful and encouraging passage for those in this room, parents especially, who have children who have wandered away from the Lord, who, children who are lost in their sins. It's a glorious reminder, isn't it? That our children may be far from God, but his omnipotence is never far from them. With the word, the almighty king of the universe can raise new life even in our children's hearts. J.C. Ryle commented on this passage and said this, let us never despair for our children, but let us to continue to pray for them. Our young men and our young women may long seem to be traveling on the way to ruin, but let us pray on. Who can tell? But he that met the funeral at the gates of Nain may meet yet our unconverted children and say with almighty power, young man, young woman, arise. There's nothing impossible with Christ. By his power, Jesus reveals himself in this text as more than simply a prophet. Did you notice that at the end? The people who saw this, they said two things. A great prophet has arisen and God has visited his people. But we know that Jesus is a prophet, but he is God in the flesh. God has indeed visited Nain. So we need more than a prophet just to tell us what to do. We need a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the prophets in the Old Testament pointed forward to this one who would to come, who would fulfill everything that the law and the prophets have written. So Jesus is that greater prophet that Moses describes in Deuteronomy 18. Elijah and Elisha all pointed forward to this great one who would to come in the future. But Luke's telling us that behold, there is one greater than Moses and Solomon and Elijah is here. Friends, one last thing to point out is that in this passage, we have a preview of the power that Jesus will exercise on the last day. It's a preview of coming attractions. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, an hour's coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of the life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There's a day coming when Jesus will speak, arise, and the dead will rise. Christian, I want you to ponder how Jesus uses his power. He has all power. And yet in this passage, he uses it not to harm, but to heal the hurting. He uses his power not to ruin, but to rescue the perishing. Let us worship this Christ. And let us witness of his grace 
to a dying world. And as you ponder this, remember that a day is coming according to the prophet when he will swallow up death forever and he will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. And it will be said on that day, Isaiah tells us, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is our God. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us everything by giving us your dearly beloved Son. You've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in him. Help us to treasure him this day. Help us to adore him and help us to speak of his matchless grace to the world. We ask this in his name. Amen.